0: official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at wellchurchvt.com. For those of you who don't know me, um, we're in a sermon series, as Adam shared, on the gifts of celibacy and marriage, and today I have the daunting task of teaching on the gift of celibacy and singleness. But here's the thing. I'm actually really excited about this. I'm actually really excited about talking with, this, uh, with you about this because it's something that doesn't get talked about enough, and it's certainly something that doesn't get celebrated enough. And because we don't talk a lot about singleness and celibacy, and because we do a pretty terrible job of celebrating it, I would say in the larger church culture, but also probably here at Church of the World too, um, what can happen is that assumptions that we make about singleness and celibacy that aren't true, we begin to think of as true. For example, there's the assumption that marriage is better than singleness, now, we might not teach that officially here at Church of the Well, but I bet many of us think that. Probably some of us believe that. Well, the truth is that marriage is good. It's very good. God created it. But it's not better than singleness. Just as singleness is not better than marriage. Singleness and marriage are two paths to a beautiful kingdom life. Now, Scripture uses what sounds to our ears like some surprising language when it talks about celibacy and singleness. It calls singleness a gift, not a curse, not an annoyance or an inconvenience, but a gift. And by definition, a gift is a very good thing. A gift is something to enjoy, to appreciate, to cherish, to share and to use well. So today what I want for us to do is to take a look at what Scripture really means when it calls singleness and celibacy a gift. And um, my married friends, I hope that you will um, follow along because each of you has friends and colleagues and relatives who are single. This sermon is for you too. And right here in this room, you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are unmarried, and you have a special role to play in their lives. In fact, you have not just a special, but a unique role that only you who are married and in some cases have kids can play. And if that's not enough reason uh, to listen, my married friends, I'm going to ask you to help me out with something at the end of this sermon. So track with me here. I want to start with a little history. I want to paint a picture for you of life in biblical times. If you lived in ancient Israel, you were expected to marry and it's as simple as that. This was a pretty strong cultural norm. But it wasn't just a cultural norm. It was practically a command. Because you see, there are four words in the first chapter of Genesis that the Jews took as God's first command, the Bible's first command. Be fruitful and multiply. That was what they saw as the Bible's first command. So if you didn't marry, you couldn't multiply. And if you didn't multiply, you were breaking a command. So you essentially had to get married. Now, in ancient Israel, um, marriages were arranged, and there's a strong emphasis on marrying early. The ideal age for men um, was late teens, and for women, although pretty much girls, was around puberty. Um, There was one piece of rabbinic literature um, that stated if a man was not married by the age of 20, except for purposes of studying the law, he was committing a sin. That's how serious a marriage was in ancient um, Jewish culture. So, being married was pretty important. But marriage wasn't just pretty important, it was actually pretty necessary because there weren't any 401ks in the ancient world. No retirement plans, no nursing homes. Your children and your grandchildren were quite literally your social security. If you didn't marry and have children, you were basically signing up to spend your old age poor, unassisted, and alone. Enter Jesus. Along comes an itinerant rabbi from Nazareth, son of a carpenter, about 30 years old and unmarried. Did you catch that? About 30 years old and unmarried. I wonder if some eyebrows were raised. Well, although he was unmarried, it would not exactly be correct to call him single because um, he had an exceedingly close relationship with God, whom he called his father, now, this was kind of revolutionary. In the Old Testament, you rarely, you rarely see examples of the people referring to God as Father. But Father was Jesus' favorite way of referring to God. And Scripture talks about uh, Jesus being one with the Father, which is to say he was never actually alone. And Jesus also had a group of 12 very close friends. He ate with them. He traveled with them. He preached the kingdom of God with them. He did life with them, his disciples. Not to mention many friends beyond that, Mary and Martha, and Lazarus Lazarus comes to mind. Well, the religious authorities did not really like this itinerant rabbi from Nazareth who called God his father, forgave people of their sins, and healed many who were sick. And uh, they saw him as as a threat to their power because people were actually following him, so they decided to try to shipwreck his ministry. And you see this tr- happening over and over again in the Gospels. Well, the way that they would try to do this was to snag him in some kind of a controversy. So one day, some of them decided to question him about divorce laws. You see, there was a disagreement among the Jews about what were sufficient grounds for a husband to divorce his wife. Now, of course, there were practically no grounds for a woman to divorce her husband, but that's a different story. Um... One school of Jewish thought believed that a man was free to divorce his wife if some indecency was found in her. But what counted for indecency was up for debate. Another school said that a man could divorce his wife if she so much as burned the cooking. I'm not kidding here. Legally speaking, she could char dinner and get booted. Well, which camp would Jesus side on? Was he going to come down as a liberal or a conservative? Jesus does something surprising. Instead of entering into the debate headlong, instead of entering their trap, he quotes Genesis. He raises the the debate to another level, the discourse to another level. He refers to the creation. He refers to the Bible's definition of marriage in Genesis 2.24, where it says, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And then he adds his commentary to that. He says, therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. Here's what he's saying. When it comes to marriage the way God intended it, divorce is simply not part of the equation. Well, the disciples are taken back. And in Matthew 19, 10, it says, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. In other words, if you're supposed to stick with it in your marriage, even if Your meals are chronically burned and, God forbid, some more serious issues are going on. Well, who can get married? It's like they're saying, come on, Jesus, you surely can't mean what you've just said. If marriage were that serious, it would be impossible. You're right, Jesus essentially responds. Not everyone should get married. Here's what he says. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. There are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So because marriage was such a given in ancient Jewish uh, society, there were exceedingly few people who were unmarried. There were those who were born physically deficient in a way that prevented them from marrying, there were servants and slaves in royal courts who were actually castrated. That was a, a tradition in the ancient world to keep them loyal to the ones that they serve. And then what does Jesus do? He essentially introduces a third category, eunuchs for the kingdom. Now, there is a precedent for this in the Old Testament. You could say that Jeremiah, the prophet who was unmarried, was a eunuch for the kingdom. And there are others as well. But I think what Jesus is doing here is he's opening the playing field and he's saying to be a eunuch for the kingdom, you don't have to be a Jeremiah. It's for you. It's for anyone who hears this teaching and has the ability to receive it. So who were the eunuchs for the kingdom? They were people who either chose not to marry for the sake of living more fully for God or they may have been people who very much wanted to be married. But finding themselves unmarried or having lost a spouse and finding themselves unmarried in that state, chose to live into their singleness as a way of living for the kingdom. Now, these eunuchs for the kingdom in the early uh, world, in the early church, they were taking a great step of faith because, as I mentioned earlier, they were essentially throwing away their retirement plan. They were trusting that instead of their own biological family to take care of them in their old age, their new family, the family of God, would be there for them. They were quite literally betting their lives on Jesus' promise in Matthew 19, 29, where Jesus says, Everyone who has left houses, or brothers or sisters, or father or mother, or wife or children, or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and inherit eternal life. Do you notice the promise there, the The 100 times as much of all of these things is for this life. He's not talking about heaven. He does talk about heaven. Yes, there's eternal life as well. But in this life, you will receive a hundredfold. So Jesus is essentially opening up or broadening this new path. And it's a surprising path. And it's a good and beautiful path. It's a path that requires radical faith. But paradoxically, it's a path that also promises deep fulfillment. And you know what? it's the path that Jesus chose to follow. It's also the path of John the Baptist, Timothy, probably Martha and Mary, Anna the prophetess who was a widow and long-time unmarried woman, probably Lydia, and of course the author of most of the New Testament, Paul. And it's also the path of many of the heroes of the faith in the last century or two, Amy Carmichael, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Corey Ten Boom, Rich Mullins, Lilius Trotter, Henry Nowen, Mother Teresa, John Stott. Single friends, we're in some pretty amazing company. I started out today saying that I'd like for us to look at what the Bible means when it talks about singleness and celibacy as a gift. But first I should probably clarify that biblically speaking, when I'm talking about singleness and celibacy, those two things go hand in hand, singleness and celibacy go hand in hand. Paul never speaks of the state of being unmarried apart from sexual abstinence. You see, he has a high view of sexuality. For him, when two people are joined in body, they are also joined in spirit. You could say they're joined in soul. They become one. This is the same language that the scripture uses when it describes Jesus' relationship with the Father. Remember, I mentioned earlier that it said that Jesus and the Father were one. Do you see the parallel here? What I'm getting at, and I'll just be candid here, sex is holy. And because of this, Paul makes no accommodation for it to take place outside of a covenant, the covenant of marriage. So we're going to take a look at what Scripture means when it calls singleness and celibacy a gift, but first I want, to, um, I want to share three correctives to what I think are some really common misconceptions about singleness and celibacy, misconceptions that we have broadly in the world, but also in the church and church culture. First, we tend to think of marriage as the default, but I want to suggest to you that singleness and celibacy are actually the default. Because we're all called to be single, but some of us are called to be married. We're all born into the world unmarried. We'll all live at least a portion, if not all of our lives, unmarried. This is the case obviously leading up to marriage, but for many of us it is also the case following marriage. In some cases, marriage sadly will end in divorce. This is not God's desire, but it is in some cases a reality. Others will find themselves single later in life because, realistically speaking, God brings each of us home at a different point in time, some of us earlier than others. C.S. Lewis comes to mind. C.S. Lewis was nearly a lifelong single. He was called to marriage when he was 58 years old. He was married to the love of his life, Joy Davidman, for four years. She died of bone cancer and he spent the rest of uh, his years living as a single man. Singleness is the default. Secondly, we tend to talk about singleness as a calling, which it is, but we often neglect to talk about marriage also as a calling. And I want to make it really clear here this morning that marriage is a calling. Now, by calling... What I mean is not that maybe somebody prophesies over you and says you're called to be married or God writes the name of your future spouse in the clouds. Um, I simply mean experiencing a distinct sense of God's leading, a sense that marriage is God's purpose for you, his provision for you. And along with that, a confirmation of that sense by your community, your circumstances, and of course, by your spirit. I believe it's important that we not marry until we're called to marry, if we're called to marry. And if you'll permit me, I just want to take a moment here to say something about entering into the calling of marriage. How many of you were here two weeks ago when Kevin Fitton spoke? He's one of the founding pastors of our church. He was back to visit. He gave a a really um, excellent sermon on covenant friendship. And if you were here, you may remember him defining covenant. He defined it as an agreement that's made before God, but he added something. It's not just an agreement made before God. It's an agreement also that's designed to draw each of the parties closer to God. So if parties of a covenant friendship are meant to draw each of the parties closer to to God, each other closer to God, how much more so are the parties in a marriage meant to draw each other closer to God? Is God calling you to marriage? if this is your sense, I want to invite you to ask yourself a question. Is the relationship that I'm in, which I'm thinking might lead to marriage, is it drawing me closer to God? In other words, is my potential spouse someone that God is using to draw me closer to him? If so, maybe God is calling you to marriage. Third corrective. I I think there's a myth that we often embrace uh, in in the church, especially, that if you're called to be single, it's for life. Now the truth is, if you're single now, you're called to be single, for now. (laughs) You may be called to singleness for the rest of your life, or you may not. You know, when it comes to vocation, many of us have experienced this. Callings can change. You may be called to go to college. You may be called to the mission field. You may be called back home to take care of ailing parents. Maybe God will call you into a career at that point. At some point, he may call you to retire from your career. Likewise, singleness is, is, is a calling that can change. If you're a single, your calling to singleness may or may not be lifelong. My advice is don't worry about trying to figure that out. Personally, I haven't figured that one out. I believe it's best that we simply hold our future before God with open hands. When we hold our future before God with open hands, it means that we're releasing our, re- our right to determine our own future. That can be a scary thing. But it also means that we're making room for God's best. We're making room to receive the, God, the good gifts that God has for us because he truly knows what's best for us. Will we trust him for that? So, Paul uses the language of gifts when he talks about celibacy and singleness. Singleness as a gift, you say? Yes, that's exactly what he says. He's unmarried, and he says, 1 Corinthians 7, 7, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another that. Now, when we think of gifts, I think we often think of a special ability, right? Like you may have a a gift for music or sports or listening, Um, and, and, and that is true about a gift, and both marriage and singleness are gifts in that sense. They both require a special ability, a special ability that God gives and that we grow into over time and with practice. The gift doesn't land in your lap fully formed. You grow into it over time and with practice. But in the biblical sense, a gift is always something a little bit more. It's a special ability with a kingdom purpose. Now, the Greek word for gift here is charisma. And interestingly, it's the same word that Paul uses when he's talking about the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. Gifts like healing, prophecy, wisdom, knowledge, teaching, discernment, tongues, interpretation of tongues. And what does he say the purpose is for those gifts? They exist, he says, to build up the body. They're primarily to be used for the common good. You could put it this way. um, This is a quote from a Christian filmmaker. Um, She says, uh, uh, A gift is not something God has given to an individual, but something God has given to the body through an individual. That means if you're married... This is not merely God's provision for your individual happiness. It is his provision also for your spouse, for your community, for the body of Christ. And if you're single, this is also his provision for your community. And it's something that God can and will use to build up the body of Christ. Excuse me. That said... Marriage and singleness are also about us, but in a different way than we might at first think. You see, God is in the business of forming and shaping us and making us into the image of his son. He's the potter and we're the clay. And if we're walking with him, formation is happening a little bit every day. Sometimes it happens through big events that happen in our lives that form us and shape us. But often God is using the ordinary everyday circumstances. In fact, if you are walking with him, he every day is using the ordinary everyday circumstances of your life to form you and to shape you. And you know what? This is especially happening when your ordinary everyday circumstances get just a little bit difficult. And there's a theological term for this, sanctification. How many of you, my married friends, know that marriage is difficult? For those of you who are married, I wonder how many of you have been stretched in the area of patience, probably more than you ever thought possible. And then if kids came along, you were probably stretched even more. And how many of you who are married have learned to grow in grace, have had to grow in grace, right? God has been using your marriage as a means of sanctification in your life. And he's doing the same through the experience of singleness for those of us who are unmarried, just in different ways. We who are single have also had to grow in patience. God has been stretching us too. He's been cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in our hearts, and it has been hard. It's been lonely at times, and sometimes it has stretched us beyond what we thought possible. But once in a while, we get a glimpse of the larger thing that he's doing, both in us and even through us, and we see that it's good. My single friends, I want to invite you to take a moment this week, if you feel drawn, to open up the book of Galatians to Galatians 5, where Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I wonder if you would ask God to give you eyes to see what he has been cultivating in your character and how he's been maturing your faith through your singleness. Looking back, has he been perhaps deepening your capacity for patience? Has he been forming a sweet gentleness in you or compassion for others? I also wonder if you would be so daring as to ask him to show what hasn't been blooming. Is it peace, Is it joy? Is it self-control? And as you offer your life to him daily as a living sacrifice, as you offer your singleness to him, I wonder if you might be intentional about letting him form the fruit of the Spirit in you through your experience as a single person. I believe if you ask him, he surely will. So today, whether you're married or whether you're single, God is forming and shaping you. He is birthing the fruit of the Spirit in you. And if you're married, he's using your marriage to do this. And if you're single, he's using your singleness to form you. Romans 8.28 says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So if you are married, he is using your marriage to form you. He is using it for good. And same if you are single. I want to take a moment to talk practical because if, a si- if singleness and celibacy is a gift, what does that look like practical sp- practically speaking? It can't just be a, a concept, it has, to, it has to look practical in our lives as well. Well, if you're not married, you don't have kids, there's no doubt about it, you can party a whole lot more. <laughs> you can stay up till 4 a.m. every night, you cannot clean your room, you cannot do your dishes, you cannot make your bed, you can eat cold pizza for breakfast. You can have donuts for lunch. You can eat ramen noodles for dinner every night. Um, And all this might be kind of fun for a while, but I'm guessing it probably won't fulfill you. Or you can devote yourself to community, to serving others and to honing and using the gifts that God has given you with the freedom that you have, which many others wish they had. That, I think, is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about being a eunuch for the kingdom. He doesn't talk about being a eunuch for the self, yourself. He talks about being a eunuch for the kingdom. So what might that look like day to day? Maybe it means you actually have the time to create the art or writing or music that you felt compelled to create and which perhaps God will use to bless others. Think of all of the creative folks who would love to pursue their passion for pottery, or poetry, or painting. And they may even feel called to it, but they simply can't get around to it because of their obligations to provide for a family. Maybe being a eunuch for the kingdom means you can hop on a plane for a week or a month, or heck, maybe a year, and and work with deaf children in Honduras, or orphan boys in Mexico. Maybe it means you can go back to school because you're feeling a tug toward a more meaningful career, one that's a little bit more in line with your passion and your sense of calling than the one that you're currently in. And I'm not saying that married p- people can't make a career change, but realistically, it can be harder. Maybe it means that you can pour yourself into a host of meaningful relationships because you have the time and space in your life for multiple deep friendships, more than most married people have the time and space for. Maybe it means you can volunteer with an organization that does work that you're passionate about, like human trafficking, stopping human trafficking, or environmental justice. Maybe you can even start your own organization. Maybe it simply means you can walk alongside other single people and be family for them and with them. Paul makes it really clear there's a definite benefit to singleness, and it is practical. It's the benefit of an undivided focus. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, 32-34, An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how it can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how it can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I want to share a story with you. When I was in graduate school in Boston, for about six years, I helped out um, with this outreach at my church. It was a ministry to international graduate students called Cultural Connection. And I helped lead it. I was very committed to this ministry, and I spent a lot of time helping to lead Bible studies and American cultural classes, which we held weekly. And we did monthly weekend excursions. And as I got to know these international graduate students, many of them asked me to help with their dissertations because I I love writing. Um, And so I found myself working with them at that level. And I was also very involved with my church. I was on the worship team. I was in a small group. I helped out with communion from time to time. Well, my best friend from college, uh, she lived in Ohio, um, was married, had three kids. We would talk on the phone about uh, once a week, and um, I remember one week I just had a really hard week, and I was planning on kind of venting when we were going when we talked on the phone and but it turned out she had a really hard week too, and she beat me to the chase <laughs> Now she has three kids, um, and at that point, I think they were like between toddler and and you know elementary s- uh, school age and I just you know there were just these ongoing complicated issues with each of their teachers at school, so much that she was like considering homeschooling over the course of of many years um, uh There were complicated issues at one point with her husband's boss. There were health issues in the family, emergency room visits. And that week, so many of these things had sort of come together, and her entire energy had been absorbed by her family. She was absolutely exhausted. And by the time she finished sharing, I realized that, by contrast, my week had not been bad at all. (laughs) In fact, it had been pretty wonderful. Because for all the challenges and frustrations that I had had that week, and they were real, Um, I had also had many rich opportunities to connect with people in really meaningful ways, in in my case, across cultural and religious divides. I felt like the work I was doing was making a difference in people's lives, and it felt exciting. And that was all in my spare time. That was on top of my classes, which were actually pretty interesting as well. So thanks to this telephone conversation, my perspective on my week, but also really on my life, changed. Now, I want to make it clear that the work of marriage and if you're blessed with children, the work of raising a family is such a beautiful and good and holy thing. It's actually a ministry, but it's also a calling. And on the phone that day, I questioned whether I had that calling. <laughs> for the first time, you know, because, you know, I think everyone goes through, through this um, who is single for any amount of time. You know, I certainly had ambivalence about being single. I remember thinking maybe, just maybe, my singleness was God's gift to me. <laughs> Singles, you have freedom that many wish they had. Don't waste it. Use it. Savor it. And let it bear fruit for the kingdom. So we've taken a close look at what singleness could look like practically. Singleness as in being a eunuch for the kingdom of God. Um, In closing today, I want us to step back and and look look, look at the big picture. You see, there's something else that singles have to offer that's unique and special and perhaps their most important gift to the world. And here's what it is. It's the love story that they're telling with their lives. When Jesus talks about the church, he calls it his bride. When a husband and wife love each other well, when they love each other sacrificially, and they honor each other above themselves, It paints a picture of Christ's sacrificial love for for the church and for the church's pure devotion to him. And that picture is breathtaking. A marriage is a signpost that points to the wedding feast that will take place when Christ comes back for his bride. The single person's life also tells a story, a love story, and it's absolutely breathtaking. It's a story of holy longing. We singles live in a state of longing, and our longing is a picture of the church's longing, the longing for the restoration of all things when brokenness will be fixed, illness healed, death destroyed. It's the longing to be with our bridegroom, the one who has rescued us, the one who is in love with us, and the one who alone can make us whole. And even as the single person's life tells the story of holy longing, we're also telling the story of fulfillment in God. One writer calls the single who lives in purity and community, quote, a billboard for the sufficiency of Jesus. You see, a well-lived single life screams to the world. He's real. He's near. His love is true. And the well-lived single life, it's actually Prophetic. You see, while human marriage points to the marriage of Christ and the church that will take place at the end of time, someone who is a eunuch for the kingdom is, in a sense, already living that marriage. I want to say that again because it's really important. While the human marriage points to the marriage of Christ and the church, someone who is a eunuch for the kingdom is, in a sense, already living that marriage. So whether you're married today or single, let me ask you this. Have you found yourself in God's love story? If you're single today, will you let him use your longings to shape you and to sanctify you? Will you let him tell the story of his love for the world through your life? Have you come to the point of knowing deep in your heart that even if the world or the church labels you as quote-unquote single, as a follower of Christ, one in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, you are forever companioned. You're never alone. I'm going to invite up the band as we close today. and I'm going to take a moment um, to ask us to do something special and a little different take a moment to speak a blessing over the single people in our midst. Because single people need to be reminded of God's blessing on their lives. Single people, you are blessed by God. And because we single people need to experience the blessing of the church. The church has pedestaled marriage and family, but it has largely failed to celebrate singles. And many singles have felt left out, wondering if they have a place And so, my married friends, I would ask this morning if you might be the voice of this blessing. Because, married friends, you have a special role to play in the lives of singles. Jesus said, as I quoted earlier, that those who leave father or mother, sister or brother, wife or children or friends, for his name's sake, will gain them 100-fold. Did you know that you are a part of God's provision for the single people in your life and in this room? The Bible makes it clear it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for woman to be alone. God has called you, married friends, to be family to the single in your midst. And he's called you now to bless them. So um, I'm going to invite you, and I'm going to have John lead us in a blessing. And if you are unmarried, I would invite you just to receive this blessing. You can close your eyes if that helps you to receive it. And I'm going to ask the married people to give voice to this blessing. Um, so I'll invite John up to lead us in this. And you can stand. Thank you so
1: much. Will you pray with me? Lord of love and life, we ask your blessing on all who live as singles. We are grateful for their partnership in our community of faith. We delight in their gifts. We give thanks for their presence. We recognize their completeness as men and women. We honor the value they bring to all the circles of people to which they belong. We ask your blessing on those who mourn the loss of one to whom they were once joined. We ask your blessing on those who seek a person with whom to spend the rest of their days. May the comfort of the Holy Spirit lived out in community be theirs. May their friendships be many and deep, and may the fruit of their labors be sweet. May those who walk as singles never be alone, always being found in you. Give us grace to share our lives with them. Amen and amen.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service,
1: creativity, and community.